Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our subject this morning is found in verse number 20, and it is that expression, that phrase, through the veil. Through the veil. As we continue this exposition through Hebrews 10, we see yet again the beauty of not only the language that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe this access that we have to God, but we should be seeing this morning the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty in what He has done, the beauty of what He has made accessible through His death and His burial and His resurrection. This connecting thought in verses 19 through 22 really is that expression through the veil. The emphasis there is that these things that we read, this boldness that he tells us about in verse number 19, this new and living way we're told about in verse 20, and having this high priest and drawing near with a true heart and full assurance, all is the result of through the veil. There is a natural outline in this text this morning. There is a natural outline that is centered on the phrase, let us. If you'll notice with me, this expression of let us is found here in verse 22. We'll see it in verse 23, and we'll see it in verse 24. Uh, they're really because of what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. We see verse 22 tells us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23 shows us, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And then verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word us there is very specific. Uh, much like we saw this morning in our study of Psalm 133, this is a reference to the brethren. This is a reference, the us is referring to those who have access to God. This access has been granted to God through the veil. This veil that we've spoken of over the last few weeks, the veil that was in the Old Testament tabernacle and also in the temple, that veil that was separated the, holy, the holiest from the holy of holies, and that upon the death of Jesus Christ and his accomplishment on, on the cross, that that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And so the picture here is that the let us is referencing those who have access to God. Now, it might seem unfair this morning. It might even seem a little bit harsh. But when we talk about access to God, it is only those who are in Jesus Christ that truly have access to God today. Now, I know it's tempting to say, well, doesn't everybody have access to God? Uh, it is true that God would hear every single word that was uttered up, every thought that was thought regarding him and regarding what they thought about him. 
But to have access to a God who hears and answers and responds, it must be those who clearly know who Jesus Christ is, who have in fact come through the veil. The veil is the closest picture, the nearest conceivable access or idea that we can use to demonstrate what it means to have access to God. Remember that innermost part of the tabernacle, which the high priest could only enter into one time per year. In order to get to that holy of holies, he would have had to pass through the outer court. He would have had to pass through the court of the priest. And then he would have arrived at this beautiful veil, that veil that was shielding and covering what was behind it, which was the Ark of the Covenant. And also the most beautiful spot on that Ark was the mercy seat in which the blood was applied. That beautiful access through the veil. At the death of Christ, that veil, that beautiful garment, whatever it looked like, that that hanging, it was torn from top to bottom there is now nothing absolutely nothing that keeps us away from the mercy seat of God that access has been granted the us have access to God because of what Jesus Christ has done access is now not just for the high priest once per year Access is not just after going through all of the preliminary things to get there. Now the access is in fact through that veil. We see there all the way back in verse 19, this concluding statement or this result of what's getting ready to be said here. Having therefore brethren boldness to enter. That high priest would have never entered with boldness. He would have only entered in 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 a situation of being sure that he had done everything correctly before he even attempted to pull back that veil and step into that holy of holies. Because if he missed on one aspect of the preparation to go beyond that veil, that priest would have been struck dead immediately. Everything had to be in order. Everything had to be right. And yet, through Jesus Christ... He has fulfilled and done perfectly all the requirements that now the brothers and sisters in Christ can say, brethren, we have boldness to enter into the holiest. Of course, he's showing us this illustration by what that holiest place was in the tabernacle. But where is the holiest place right now? It is standing before the throne of God in heaven right now you and i as brethren and believers in christ have access to god right now and he says we have boldness to enter in we have not only boldness but we enter in by the blood of jesus we have boldness and we have freedom we have liberty to enter into the holiest only by the blood of jesus christ Where the high priest could only go in once per year, you can go at all times. Folks, I don't know if you've ever allowed your mind to meditate on this truth. You have access to God as believers in Christ at all times. We don't even have access to each other at all times. But you have access to God at all times by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
not by the blood of bulls and goats and of lambs, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of his shed blood, because of his blood that was spilt, we now have access to the holiest place of all. The veil, it's important to understand that the veil was torn, not rolled up. It's important to understand that the veil was not set aside for a while to someday be returned. There is some false doctrine circulating that would suggest that there's a veil going to be replaced. That that access that has been freely given is suddenly going to be barred again that's going to be dependent upon man being able to move that veil themselves. You and I cannot move that veil. We can't tear that veil. That veil was torn once just like our, body, our Savior's body was torn and beaten and crucified once. But He's not going to be crucified again. To try to put another veil up to bar access would be to crucify Jesus Christ all over again. When that veil was torn, that was a once for all. That veil that separated those two places. Since Jesus Christ died, there is now no separation between the believer and God. The way of Christ and the way of His shed blood opens to all believers. That leads us to this concept of this principle in verse 20 where He says, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, His flesh. That phrase, His flesh, speaks to His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It is through His accomplishment that we now have access. We have the ability. A new and living way. Having this, verse 21, this high priest over the house of of God. He says, as a concluding thought in this first heading then, as a result of this veil being torn, as a result of the blood of Jesus, as a result of Him, him being consecrated for us, His flesh, the death, His burial, His resurrection, we now have this high priest. And because we have this high priest, let us draw near. That means to come close. Folks, this is a holy God. That when Moses cried out and wanted to see the face of God, God told Moses, you may only see my backside. His, my glory cannot be seen by you. You can't look into my face and live. This new and living way now says, not only do you have access, but I want you to come in boldly and I want you to draw near. I want you to come as close as you can get. If we had, would have been alive in the Old Testament times and would understand the difference between this access that they had compared to the access we have, we would be staggered in humility. And I think we would find ourselves flat on our face before God in continual worship because of the blessing that we have of this access to God. The Old Testament saint, that veil was still in place. There was not the access in which we have. It's staggering to think about that the access that we have is even greater than the access that Abraham had. It's greater access than Moses had. It's greater access than Joseph had. We have access by a new and living way. This new and living way through this veil. 
But he doesn't just say, let us draw near for the sake of drawing near. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Knowing that Christ is mine and I am his. That I am one of his. I do belong to God. I have, in fact, repented of my sins. I believed on Christ alone for my my saving faith. I am assured of that. Let us draw near in faith. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this is a number of these commands or these principles there, these are, uh, these are, uh, are encouragements, if you will, to, to completely rely upon what's been done by Christ is our license to draw near. Full reliance. Folks, I do not rely on anything else for my access to God than the merits and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else I claim. I don't claim being a pastor as giving me greater access. That's one of the greatest myths in the church is that that man who stands up, who's nothing more than a, than a church member himself, stands up before a congregation of people. I have no greater access to God than you do. I don't have a special line to God. I don't have a special prayer channel to God. When I tell you to go bold to the throne of grace, I'm not putting you off. I'm not counting you as less important. But I'm telling you, it's not me you want to come to. It's God Himself you want to go to. And He says, draw near to me with a full assurance of faith. And He's going to say, not only a full assurance of faith, but He says, I want you to do that without wavering. It really staggers some people when they begin to realize that the Spirit begins to really teach them This is not just a hypothetical thing. I truly have the same access to God as every other believer. That that preacher doesn't have greater access than I have. He doesn't have greater praying power than I have. He has the same access that I do. I can come as boldly as he goes. But notice the boldness, again, is not in our own strength. The boldness is not in our own righteousness. It's in our assurance that the living way is through the veil that was torn by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the living way. And he says, let us have this full assurance. Our hearts sprinkled from this evil conscience. Our hearts have, in fact, been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And he says, because you can draw near to this. Look at verse 23, really the second heading. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. So verse 22 talks about this full assurance of our faith. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Notice he says, not only hold it, but hold it fast without wavering. What I, when I read this and I see this, and I believe this is what the meaning of this is, it means to not have a question at all about it. 
to not doubt it one bit, this access that I have to God through the veil that was torn by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have some that will say, I'm a believer, but I still don't think that God, knowing my past, knowing what I've done, He certainly is restricting my access to Him. There's no biblical truth to back that up. Now, if I'm in sin and I refuse to repent of that sin and I continue to dwell in sin, you can be assured there is going to be a broken, there's going to be a broken fellowship and there are going to be consequences for that sin. But this idea that says your access to God is dependent upon anything that you have done or what you will do is false. You say, well, I had a good week this week. God will, God will really let me in this week. What you've done this week has not changed your access to God one iota. You say, but what? I, I checked off all my Christian boxes this week. That didn't get you any more access to God. I, I read extra Bible verses this week. I, I actually read a whole chapter of the Bible. I turned my five-minute devotion into an actual hour. God's certainly going to be pleased with me and let me more access. It doesn't grant you any more access because your access was never dependent upon your works, never dependent upon your righteousness. Your access was dependent solely and only on the blood of Christ because it was His death, His burial, His resurrection that tore that veil. You've done nothing to earn your access. You've done nothing to even keep your access. And that's why the writer says, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith. And let us hold fast to this. Don't have a question about it. Can you imagine if we actually got to the place in our life where we had an unquestioning, unstaggering, unwavering faith about what God has already done? Sadly, we continue to attach what we do for God as our reward to get access. We say, the more I do for God, the closer I am to God. It says, let us draw near with the full assurance of faith based upon the context of the access that's been granted to you by the blood of Christ. The only reason that the high priest had access to that holy of holies was because he had what was needful. The blood. The blood which typified the blood of Christ. Remember the blood that was applied to the mercy seat and one of the things that was inside of that ark was the broken law, the broken tablets that symbolizes us breaking the laws of God. And yet the blood of Christ, the mercy seat, the blood applied covers that broken law. Sadly, there are some who are caught in this trap of works are getting me better access. To hold fast of our hold fast the profession of our faith seems to be enough. But the writer says, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, which means it's even better still to hold fast to it without wavering. I can hold tightly to something and wonder whether I'm going to lose my grip on that. I can hold as tight as I can, and I can say, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold it, I'm going to hold it, I'm going to hold it. He says, I want you to hold this and never waver in the confidence that you have, that you have this access before you. You're not going to lose it. Folks, so much of our life problems, so many of our spiritual problems, 
are because we have a faith that wavers. We have a faith that is staggered. We have a faith that when something happens, it seems to disrupt our lives and it turns us to a place where we say, we start to question everything. But the reality is, is our access, this nearness to God, this was never ever about us. It was about what he's done. It truly is. It truly is he holding on to us. He's telling us to hold fast in our confidence, not in your strength, not in your works. He doesn't say, you'll notice, hold fast in your own strength. He says, hold, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. But then look at the next verse or the end of that verse. For he is faithful to promised. The reason I hold fast and I'm told to hold fast is not because of my strength, but because God is faithful. Do you know how many times you as a believer or even before you were a believer have heard the phrase, God is faithful? How many times have you heard it? Thousands. How many times do you actually truly believe it? This is the test right here. Somebody will say, well, I'm God, I am confident God will put food on my table today. I'm confident. God's faithful. Then why do we get, why do we waver when we question whether God will continue to give us full assurance and access to the throne of God? It's the same faithfulness. God is faithful for all that he promised. That means there's not a single promise that God made that he will ever be unfaithful to. There's not a single person who has lived or ever will live that God will be unfaithful to. God is incapable of being unfaithful. You and I are more likely to be unfaithful to Him. Not more likely, we will be unfaithful to Him. You've been unfaithful to God this last week in something in your life, and yet He has remained steadfast, sure, and faithful. And He says, you have not done anything that's going to affect my promises. Sometimes we use access to God as some kind of a punishment. Oh, if you did that, God is surely barring you now. You no longer have access. Then you're suggesting that the veil was put back up. You're suggesting that the veil is now hanging again. There is nothing that you can do. God is faithful. If God were unfaithful, if he could be unfaithful, then you should naturally be an unbelieving person. In other words, if you could show me one time ever, one time, that God has been unfaithful, then I could stand here today and say, you know what, then you have reason to walk out of here today and don't believe God. But here's the thing, you can't point one time in human history, not one time that God has ever been unfaithful. Not one time God has not done what he promised. There's There's not a time that has happened. There's not a time that will happen. There's not a time in the future where God is just going to say, I am fed up with the human race. I've decided that all that faithfulness stuff, I changed my mind. I've had it with them. That's what happens when we become unfaithful. We just simply say, I've had it. I don't want to be faithful anymore. Remember we talked in our study this morning, our flesh, our humanity, will sometimes make us believe that God's been unfaithful. Or we'll even go one step further. God's been unfair to me. There's never been a time God's been unfair to you either. 
There's never been a time that God has not dealt justly with you. There's never been a time that God has been wrong towards you. There's not been a time that God has ever wronged you in any way, shape, or form. But we've wronged God. It's an amazing thing. Bad things happen in people's lives, and the first person they blame is God. This is God's fault. Even in God's sovereignty and His providence, even in the things we don't understand, God has never been unfaithful. God has never been unjust. He's always fulfilling His promises. We naturally, if God one time failed to be faithful, then we could say, God is sometimes faithful to what He promised. God is 99.9% faithful to what He promised. No, God is faithful all of the time, eternally. That's what leads the writer to say, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promise. That's why we can hold fast, is because God is faithful. The reason we can have full assurance is because God is faithful. And then we get to the, the part that will really begin to speak, I hope, at least it does for me. Because now he says, because of these things, verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's the third heading. The word provoke is an interesting word because we see the word being used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament of provoking not our children. Provoke often comes with the terms of something negative. It comes with something that is a little, honestly, a little bit maybe sarcastic, a little bit combative, suggesting conflict. And we've heard it taught that way. If you've ever, if you've ever been in a, in a family conference and that word comes up, fathers, provoke not your children, it'll take the route of you know, uh, making your child uh, feel like you're angry with them or making them feel like conflict. This is not the exact This is not the same word. This, this word provoke is a, a tender word. This word provoke is to approach with tenderness. And instead of trying to exploit or to condemn or to find fault with another brother, rather this is to deal with it tenderly. To provoke with the intent of causing a brother or sister to stumble is not what the writer has in mind here. It is easy for us, every one of us, to find and point out the faults in someone else and hammer that home. Do you know you all don't have to do anything to feed that? We naturally see a fault or a weakness in someone else and the first thing we say is we attack that thing and we say that right there. The writer is saying, let us provoke unto love and to good works. Knowing what we know about God being faithful, knowing what we know about our full assurance, knowing what we know about not needing to waver, now he's putting, now he's where the rubber meets the road. He said, if you fully understand this, you're going to provoke one another unto love and good works. Now this, tie, this does tie back to our study on unity this morning. 
It does tie back to the reality of when we provoke someone unto love, we consider who they are. It's a consideration as a means of guiding them in love and guiding them unto good works. How could we be a better brother or sister in Christ than being loving and full of good works towards others? If, if these people, if those people that we are provoking, if they're helped by God's grace and love, why would we want to do anything else? You see, when we understand the truth of who God is and we understand about His faithfulness and we understand that our assurances and our hold is not our hold on Christ, but it's His hold on us, and we're brought to this place of deep humility that we can say, my confidence, my assurance, my access to God ought to equate to a life that demonstrates what's happened to me. I ought to be a person who is provoking others. To good works. In verse 25, he says, not forsaking. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now again, this verse, again, it's possible to take God's word and to use it like a hammer. And it is possible to take God's word and to use it against people and to to pound and pound and pound and say, you're in violation of this, you're in violation of this. But this is supposed to be a reminder of the beauty of believers assembled together. This goes right back to the unity we talked about this morning at 10 o'clock. One heart, one mind, one unified, same voice, same mind, same judgment. When believers who have this confidence, this assurance of access to God, this assurance that's been through the veil that was torn by the blood of Jesus Christ, there not only is going to be the result of this provoking one another unto good and unto love, but it's also going to result in the beauty of those groups of people, those types of people assembling together in the beauty of who Christ is. Now sadly... And again, this is not intended, so please hear me. This is not intended to point anybody out in this congregation at all. But I'm going to tell you one thing the last two years has done. And you can argue with me if you want, and I might be stepping outside here for just a minute. For some, it has lessened the importance of the gathering of the local church together. And they are, they are forsaking and giving themselves over to a false sense of what the local body of believers was supposed to be. Church is not at home streaming a sermon. Our streaming is not so that you can have the sermon in place of the gathering. The beauty of this cannot be replicated on a screen. You cannot say it's the same. I remember standing at this very pulpit the very first Sunday and Wednesday that we could not gather. And I'm going to tell you, I've had a lot of sad times in ministry. That was the worst. The worst. It was myself and those three sitting in this building. 
And it's not because they're not important. They're the most important people in my life, and they know that. But to look out on this congregation, on these seats, see nobody there, but look here and see people on there, it wasn't the same. It never was the same. It couldn't be replicated. The beauty of believers being together and assembled together who have the same confidence in God that God is faithful. Do you realize there are times that in our fellowship that what we need from each other is for another brother and sister just to talk to you and remind you that God is faithful? You think that little fellowship time we have in between services is just to kill time to get to the next? It's intentional. It's intentional for us to encourage and edify each other because we need that. I, I couldn't believe the day we said, we're going to reassemble. We're coming back to this place together. And I, I couldn't wait to get here because it wasn't the same prior to that. There were times this preacher needed some of you to come up and say to the preacher, hey, God's faithful. Can you believe it? A pastor of a church actually might have the same feelings that you have and maybe sitting one time and saying, you know what? I'm really struggling with the faithfulness of God. Every pastor who truly understands his calling and understands who he is in God has that struggle, I assure you. They're not made of steel and they have the same struggles. How can God be in two years of this? How could God be in this forsaking the assembling of the others? But you know what every pastor thought would happen the minute we reopened those doors? They thought people would flood right back in. But guess what happened? A lot of churches, they didn't reopen. Nobody came back. They said, I get church. I get church streaming. I don't need to go. Actually, you probably do. You need it. I need it. If it wasn't important, we wouldn't be told to assemble together. This assembly of ourselves. I said this this morning. There is no greater beauty than the assembly of a local church. There isn't. Whether that's five people meeting together somewhere or it's 500 people. Don't buy the lie that a church of 500 is more blessed than a church of five. The blessing of God's people assembling together and assembling freely in full confidence, full assurance, with faith that's not wavering, knowing that God is faithful. I read, again, I'm just putting this out there. I read not long before Spurgeon passed away. And we have a hard time relating to this. One of his great concerns was that when his sermons started being printed, and there was, there was good intention behind it of printing his sermons. Most, if you know this, he's the most printed preacher of all time. There's more pre sermons and writings of Spurgeon been produced than any other preacher of all time. And one of his concerns was, he had a concern about the printing press at that time. And printing press, do they still print things? I get my books digitally. He was concerned about the printing press taking the place of the assembly of the church. Because he said, you know what people will start doing? They'll start reading my books and they'll start reading sermons instead. And they'll say, that's sufficient. 
I love to read Spurgeon's sermons, but it's not this. It's not even close. Because there's something that it does, it does not happen when you just read it in a book, see it on a screen. It's the assembly that's the beauty. He was concerned about those staying home to read a sermon because they said it's better than going to hear one. It's a bad example for us to simply say, I'm going to absent myself from the assembly of a fellowship because it's convenient. He also told another story, which this one staggered me this morning. I guess he said this, he said this during a sermon. He said, there was a dear sister who many of you knew who used to attend here with great regularity, although she could not hear a word that was said. But she said, and she was deaf, couldn't hear. But she said it did her good to join in the hymns and to know that she was worshiping God with the rest of his people. She couldn't hear anything. But she knew she couldn't hear the sermon, but she knew she was worshiping with God's people. See, this assembly, this is the beauty of assembling together. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Again, none of this would be true and none of this would be valuable had we not had all of the previous context of boldness, of access, of a new and living way through the veil, drawing near with a true heart and full assurance, holding fast the profession of our faith, considering one another, all of these things working together, he says, and exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It has never nor will ever be the single ministry of whoever the leadership of a church is to exhort people to assemble together. One of my, over the years, not so much now, I guess, but one of the most common requests were of me, would you call so-and-so and invite them and exhort them to come to church? And I would say, I can do that, but why me? Well, you're the pastor and all. Is, is that the requirement? No. We're also, it says exhorting one another. It's, it's exhorting each other. That means as we see these days of assembling together, we look at it and we say, let's exhort one another to assemble together. Yet I never have any problem inviting anybody to come and hear the Word of God. I have ever have a problem doing that, but you realize... We all have the same access. We all have the same command to exhort one another, to provoke one another. We should exhort to seek and to stir each other up in our faith. That's what happens when we're together. It stirs us up in our faith. The Lord teaches here and throughout Scripture, we can say it probably by heart. Christ himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Folks, that is the new and living way that the writer was talking about. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. No one has access to God the Father except through me. He consecrated himself for us. That to say his flesh or his body, he offered once for all. As that veil, as we've already talked about, came down. It signified the way into the holiest of all. When we gather together as a church, we're gathering together as people who have access by the blood of Christ. We gather freely. We gather with an understanding. Although Christ himself has died, Revelation 1.18 says that he is the living one. He did rise again. Believers have access to the throne of God and it is through him who was dead and buried and rose again. We have access forevermore. Do you realize how many years have passed since that veil was torn? This didn't just happen yesterday. And people say, was the, was the veil literally torn? Yes, the veil literally was torn. That access that was granted then will continue to be granted now. We are told and we understand and the very fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross, he died, he was buried. We are told that there is coming today, if the Lord does not return before this time, that we are going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there will be no more important time in your life than the day when that comes to know that you know God and that you know Christ as your Savior. And to know that Jesus Christ is the only living way. He's the only way of my salvation. And even if all these years you've been trusting in your own good works, you've been trusting in your own merits, you've been trusting in your giving, you've been trusting in this and trusting in that, there is only one living way, and that's through this veil, the veil that was torn by Jesus Christ. That's the only way you, have, you can be accepted by God. There is not going to be a weighing of the balances when you arrive at the gates of heaven to see if your good outweighs your bad. Doesn't happen. There is no Peter standing at the door saying, why should I let you in? It's not going to happen. There is no purgatory where you're caught in between and saints can pray you out. You, upon your death, are either going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to be in hell. There is no in-between. There's not going to be, well, God, if you just give me one more chance, I believe it now. There are not second chances. There are not, there's not a second opportunity to see if this is all really going to play out that way. I've given you the illustrations. There have been people throughout years, some of the most famous people in history, upon their deathbed, they were granted that time to think about their own death. Most of them cursed God and died anyway. So to think that suddenly you'll become aware of your need of Christ in that dying hour, you might not have that dying hour. It could be like that. I can have full assurance today, full confidence, not in myself, not in anything I've done, that I am 100% eternally confident that if I died this very moment, 
I know exactly where I'm going to be, and I'm going to be in the presence of God. That I don't waver on. Because I have to believe the promises of God. God said so. That's what it is. He will keep His promise. All that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Whosoever believeth on the Lord shall be saved. When we gather together, we're gathering not only for the fellowship, but we're gathering for the proclamation of the truth. Folks, I always hope that this church, long after we're gone, and I truly believe this, I hope, I hope for our sake, I hope that this church stands here for as long until the Lord comes back. And I hope our children's children, I hope they're seated here one day and there's somebody faithfully standing up and preaching the same thing that they heard all of their lives and they learned from their parents and they learned from their grandparents. And that they have an assembly that they said that church always stood for the truth. And they, were, they were, did it without wavering. In, in trials and conflicts and struggles, they stood fast. Folks, the church is not just some place we go to. Believers are the church. Amen. We are the church, not this building. We need the church. And all of us, let me just speak specifically, all of us self-sufficient men, you need the church. I need it. And it's the beauty, the picture that Jesus himself said, this thing that you're a part of, I built this. And I built it through my blood. Not yours. Not the blood of lambs and bulls and goats, through my blood. And through that, I've given you a living way and access to me. I hope this morning you can say with 100% certainty, I know Christ is the only way. And you can say, I know that my salvation only depends upon the work of Christ, not my own. And as we say every time we gather together, if you have not repented of your sins and believed on Christ alone for salvation, I beg of you, I plead with you, run to Christ. Don't stop. Don't look back. Run to Christ. He will not. He will not turn you away. I pray God will help us in this matter. Let's conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn on page 359. I think it's very appropriate for what we've heard today. 359, my soul finds 